Understood is a resource I have recommended for many years to parents looking for support with learning and thinking differences such as ADHD, dyslexia, and more. And I'm subsequently excited to tell you about their podcast, Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. They cover topics such as how to tell if your child needs an IEP, common myths about special education, and the difference between IEPs and 504 plans. I love how Understood Explains breaks down the overwhelm by unpacking an important topic each season and then drilling down further into key basics in each episode. Most episodes are between 10 to 15 minutes, and episodes are available in both English and Spanish. So fantastic, right? To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, your host, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you will come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Hello, friends. I am so excited to bring you this conversation with Jessica Leahy. She is an incredible person, a talented writer, speaker, best-selling author, and she has a book called The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, and also the book The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Both books are amazing, and I will link them up in the show notes because they should definitely be part of your parenting arsenal. I love Jess for so many reasons, and this conversation is so powerful to me because it really, at the heart, is all about embracing kids for who they are, not for what we want them to be. This is an important message always, but I feel like it's a good one that we need to keep reinforcing given the increasing pressures on kids these days. Jess and I talk a lot about stepping back and letting go, which can feel scary and uncertain, but it actually is a way to reduce pressure on you and your kids. So it's really, really important framing to have. Now, I also wanted to recommend several related episodes because as I was thinking about this conversation, so many other ones came to mind. So I will link all of these in the notes. But one episode is Raising Teenagers with Mary Del Harrington of the Grown and Flown community. This is a wonderful conversation for meeting your teenagers where they are at, and there's so much practical wisdom in it. Another great recent episode is Simple and Compassionate Parenting Tactics. This is with the incredible Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. And I heard so much feedback about this episode. It is loaded with practical tactics and scenarios. Some of the examples she talks about are ones for younger children, but the advice can extend well beyond that. Another great episode is Supporting Kids Through Continued Uncertainty and Stress. This is with Dr. Lisa Damore. And it was recorded during the pandemic, but there are so many threads in it that are relevant to everyday life and stressors. 
Another great listen is Raising Differently Wired Kids with Debbie Reber. This wonderful listen opened my understanding of differently wired kids and the different challenges and joys that come with raising those kids. And I think there's so many wonderful threads in this conversation with Debbie that also apply to kids in general. Another fantastic episode is How to Improve Communication with Kids with Ned Johnson. Tons and tons of practical tactics. His books are all about really practical advice, conversation starters, sample conversations. So you will no doubt glean a lot of wisdom from that episode. Raising Functional and Kind Kids with Catherine Newman is another beautiful listen. Being functional and being kind is everything. So this was a really both honest and compassionate and funny listen. Catherine is just lovely. I also want to recommend you listen to How to Raise Kids to be Thrivers with Dr. Michelle Borba. I have learned so much from Michelle over the past few years that we've been connected, and her book is all about how to equip your kids to thrive instead of strive. So important. And of course, there's the episode, The Addiction Inoculation with Jessica Leahy. So an important listen for parents of tweens and teens. And then later this month, I wanted to give you a sneak peek that I have an interview coming with the amazing Phyllis Fagel, and it centers around her incredible work with middle schoolers. So if you have a parent of a middle schooler, be sure to subscribe so you get that drop in your feed when it launches in a couple weeks. Okay, we'll get to this conversation after a quick break. People often talk about the impact of things like stress, hormone fluctuations, and nutrition on skin, but did you know those things impact your hair too? If you've been dealing with hair thinning, you are not alone, and Nutrafol is here to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. I appreciate that they offer formulas tailored to different life stages, such as postpartum and menopause, as well as different lifestyles, such as plant-based diets. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol Women's Hair Growth Supplement for six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering Edit Your Life listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code EDIT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. That's Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, and use promo code EDIT. That's Nutrafol.com, using promo code EDIT. Did you know that hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin, but decreases gradually as we age, leading to thinner, drier skin? If you're looking for support hydrating your skin from the inside out, check out one of the tools in my hydration arsenal, Rituals Hyacera, which I take every morning. Rituals products are tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, and Hyacera is clinically proven to reduce fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. They also engage in industry-leading sustainability standards and are a female-founded B Corp, which means they hold themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. Want to join me in hydrating from the inside out? Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash edit. 
start Ritual, or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash edit for 25% off. So, Jess Leahy, hello. How are you? I am great. I'm so happy to talk to you. I I am so happy to talk to you as well. I have been wanting to chat with you for some time, actually, since seeing you in D.C. in the fall. Um, and in an episode not too long ago, I talked to Asha about something that you had brought up that just really stuck with me. Um, and it was just kind of how you were talking about the impact that our words have as parents and how mm-hmm. like what we mean might be perceived differently by our kids. So specifically, you used an example that went something like if you say something like, oh, that's stupid in, reca- in regard to something that happened or something that they did or said, um, they'll hear that as they are stupid, not that the situation was right. Yeah, I mean, I think the context for that, there's a a couple of different ways to come at this. But the context for that is essentially, you know, we what I write about a lot is how to get kids intrinsically motivated, how to get them motivated to do things for the sake of the thing themselves. And the way you do that is by setting up three things, by giving kids more autonomy, helping them feel more competent Mm -hmm. and being really connected to your kids. And part of being connected to your kids is valuing them, not, you know, loving them, not some imaginary um, hypothetical kid that, you know, you would like to have. And part of valuing our kids is valuing what they find interesting. And, you know, the story I think I told at the time is that I have a kid who's into some stuff that to me makes no sense whatsoever. I think it's, you know, it's not evidence-based and I'm a super, you know, evidence-based academic, over-educated, blah, blah. And my kid's into some stuff that is like, hokum to me. But if I tell him that the stuff he's fascinated by and that he loves is stupid, then yeah, that's what he hears is that I kind of think he's stupid, that I kind of think, you know, he's less than because the things he's passionate about are less than. Mm -hmm. And um, that that really undercuts our relationship with our kid and and essentially undercuts learning, undercuts our relationship, undercuts all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get we'll get into that sort of supporting um, kids mm-hmm. um, different interests in a minute. But I just as context, you know, as you were talking um, during that meeting, one of the things that I was thinking about a lot was and this is something Asha and I, you know, talk about in minimalist parenting and also on the show. But um, I was just thinking, wow, I just wanted to dig in a little deeper with you about tangible ways to help parents untangle, untangle over parenting and also this mm-hmm. sort of notion of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Because I think one of the things I'm sure you see this with so many of your students and parents and people you interact with is that um, it can parents can feel a little freaked out, you know, thinking, oh, my gosh, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> because I've been overparenting for all these years. Right. So anyway, right. that's what I wanted to drill down into today. And, you know, as you know, Asha and I are all about baby steps. And mm-hmm. we also know that, you know, so much of one's own baggage, just about how you grew up or whatever plays into parenting. So there's there's a lot to entangle, but we'll, you know, we'll try to keep it in a reasonable time frame. <laughs> okay, so super duper baby steps. Like, the, you know, the stuff that I most want parents to take away from any sort of speaking thing where I'm, I'm babbling on about all the research on intrinsic motivation, blah, 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 blah. What I really want parents to take away is this, that kids who can be frustrated, kids who know who are able to sort of be frustrated, come back at a problem and tackle tackle it from another angle are more, not only are more likely to be invested in their own learning, they're more 
teachable. Okay, so mm-hmm. how do we get there? I mean, that's like the big thing, like all the things we think we're doing to help our kids by making their lunch and taking their stuff to school and telling them how to do everything actually renders them less teachable, less able to learn in the long run. So that's the big poke I give to parents and say, look, there's two big pokes I give that one and the one, the information that um, parents who are more controlling, uh, uh, kids of controlling parents lie to their parents more. I, I poke those two things because those kind of make parents listen a little bit more. But one of the, the, the sort of big takeaway baby step things are if you want to change what you're doing and be less directive with your kids, you got to just change your mindset and start thinking more long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got to start thinking about where you want your kids to be in six months, where you want your kids to be in a year. I do this a lot in my classroom. Do I care that this kid knows this tiny, obscure detail about, you know, the year in which Einstein was born? Or do I care that he knows the sort of the context of Einstein in science and in culture? Um, and the same thing with parenting, like in this moment where, oh, you really need that science project to be so perfect. Well, do you do you need this science project to be perfect today or do you want a kid who's more able to do this on their own next time around? And mm-hmm. taking that long-term view is, you know, it doesn't actually mean that you're, you may not change a ton of things in the moment, but at least you can relax a little bit and say, oh, okay, this is just a learning opportunity. This isn't necessarily about the perfect homework assignment or the perfect whatever. This is just a learning opportunity. Cool. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Thinking more long term can be really powerful. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I actually want to back up just one bit. Well, it occurs to me, I have not even told our listeners, although they probably know already, but, you know, you are the author of the (laughs) best-selling book, The Gift of Failure. And I just wanted to um, kind of like rewind a little bit and start, um, go back and be a little big picture and just, you know, you open your book with thoughts about the evolution of American parenting um, mm-hmm. And in a nutshell, like, how did we get to this overparenting place? Just like, you know, for people who are yeah. sitting here scratching their heads thinking, why, why, why are we here? I don't want to do this, but I feel the pressure to do this. You know, where, where, how did we get here? Short version. Um, we're having kids later. We're having fewer kids. We're having kids after more education. We're having kids after we've been out in the workforce for a while. And we have a media that would like us to believe that our kids, um, there's no possibility they're ever going to get a job. And there's definitely no way they're ever going to get into college, that getting into college is so much harder now that it's just not even going to happen. Um, so we've got all that pressure and and we bring the tools that we've learned to parenting. And because we've been in the workforce and because we ha- have more education, we tend to bring things like. I really need a progress report on my parenting to know how I'm doing, or I'm going to use this spreadsheet to, you know, make sure I know exactly how much breast milk's going in my baby and exactly how much poop is coming out of my baby. And I'm going to weigh those diapers and log all that stuff. Those tools, of course, we're using those tools. Those are the tools that we've gotten used to using. And of course, we're relying on external sort of validation for our own parenting because we've been getting it in the form of report cards and um, our work evaluations. And so it's not fair. And it's, it's, it would do an incredible disservice for parents if I just said, look, you guys are going about this all wrong. You're relying on extrinsic motivations for your parenting and extrinsic um, sort of evaluations for your parents and just cut it out. Well, no, we, that's what we're used to. Mm. The one thing I do ask parents to cut out, though, is this need lacking a report card, lacking a progress report to look to our children 
as an evaluation of our parenting. That is so unfair because they're not an extension of us and they are Mm -hmm. not just our parenting wrapped up in a little flesh package. They are their own people. And um, that not only does it put more pressure on us as parents, it puts a ton of pressure on them. And when I go around to schools and talk to kids and ask kids what they want me to tell their parents when I speak to the parents in the evening, inevitably one of the top um, things they want me to tell parents is please just back off. I can't be perfect. I'm trying my hardest. I'm doing my best. You say I'm not doing my best, but I really, really, really am. And I can't be perfect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're feeling a ton of stress and by extension, they're feeling a ton of stress too. Well, I like that point about, you know, I I feel like there's a bit of an edge of forgiveness and grace here as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, this is what we're used to. You know, we've Mm -hmm. had these tools at our disposal and it's just so different than it was before. Now, I suspect that, you know, these things that we are or are going to be talking about today, um, you know, may make some parents a little freaked out, like, oh, my God, I've ruined everything. Or is it too late for me? Or, you know, maybe even defensive about their way of doing Mm -hmm. things, like feeling like, well, hey, you know, how can I dial this back because everybody else is doing it? So what would you say to those folks to make them make them feel a little bit stronger? Well, that's actually one of the biggest comments I get, which is, okay, I'm totally on board. Thank you for all the evidence that shows exactly why backing off, giving my kids more autonomy, helping them feel competent and being more connected about things that are important, why that will help my kid be more competent and, by the way, increase and improve my relationship with my kid. But I can't be the first one to do it (laughs) because my kid's teacher will think that I am so not on the ball and not doing my job. All of those people around me are going to see that I'm not, you know, delivering that forgotten lacrosse stick to school and they're going to think I'm not doing my job. Um, If I don't check in on the parent portal and check my kids' grades 26 times a day, then clearly I'm not doing my job because my school made me log on to that portal on the first week of school in order to register for my kid's lunch account. So clearly they think I'm supposed to be doing this. We've set parents up to bear so much ridiculous guilt and we can be each other's worst enemies. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when I go to schools, the nice thing about having written a book that's used as a community read in schools, like where the whole community is reading it together and then I come in and talk. I always say to the administration, so what's your next step? How are you going to support these parents once I'm gone? And often that means that they have parents come into the library a month later and talk about how things are going. And I'm in the middle of creating this big um, sort of discussion group so that you can actually talk about these things in a constructive way and say, look, I've backed off on this thing, but it's really, really hard because my mother-in-law is saying I'm not doing enough. So how can I respond to that? And we need to be each other's best support. There's this thing called pressured parents phenomenon where we hype each other up. We get each other all freaked out about tennis lessons and traveling string violin leagues and all these things. And um, sometimes we just need to step away from that and Mm -hmm. stepping away from that with a friend next to us or a colleague next to us or an ally next to us is much easier than stepping away by ourselves and trying to resist this pressure on our own. And, you know, finding people of like who are like minded about it, going to, you know, going to the school and say, looking, look, I would really like to back off a little. I've been doing too much for my kid and I need your help too. Um, I never tell people to just sort of back off and never talk to the teacher or back off and stop using the portal and don't tell the school that you're going to stop using the portal. We need each other. Um, teachers need to be a part of the team. 
other parents need to be part of the team um, and we need to support each other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually wear it as a badge of pride that I have a 13 year old and I don't even know where the portal is. <laughs> yeah, I've never logged on as a I've parent. I've never logged I actually, on. I don't even know what it's yeah. called. Well, in the, you know, in the book, I give some alternatives because, you know, some people hear cold turkey and it just gives them the shakes. They can't even think about that. There are ways to go sort of in more sensical direction. I think it's really telling that when I talk at schools and I talk to the administration about sort of the problems they're seeing in their schools, often the portal is a big one, one that many administrators wish they roll back. I've had plenty of administrators, some, one in particular that's quoted in the book, at a very, very hoity-toity private school in Massachusetts that you would totally recognize, has said over my dead body, I'll retire first before I'll open up the parent portal because it is so destructive to parent-teacher relationships. And um, and keeping in mind, of course, that what I'm talking about is parents who are already sort of have this predilection to be a little over-involved in schools where parents, it's difficult for them to be involved or they don't feel welcome because of language barriers. That's a totally different conversation mm -hmm. because we do know that when family is involved in school, kids do better. So I'm talking, of course, about parents who have a tendency to be over-involved in the first place. Right. Okay. Well, actually, so speaking of that, let's, um, that's totally related to something I wanted to talk about. And you had mentioned, you know, autonomy earlier. So mm -hmm. you provide a lot of examples in um, your book about controlling versus autonomy supportive parenting. And um, I'm not, I, I think it's evident what that means, you know, either, you know, whether you're hovering or whether you're letting your kid kind of supporting them and doing their thing. What would you say is one of the most compelling examples, you know, of this for how you can pivot, you know, to help parents understand the power of moving from a controlling space to being, you know, autonomy supportive? I think for me, the most compelling example is the research that's mentioned in the book, Wendy Grolnick's research on the impact of autonomy supportive parenting on kids. When parents of really directive kids, parents, uh, you know, the kids whose parents have always told them exactly what to do, how to do it, in what color magic marker to do it, in what space to do it, how to, you know, all these things. When those kids are put in a situation where they're asked to do a task that's a little bit frustrating for them, those kids have a lot of trouble getting frustrated and pushing through and finishing the task. Mm -hmm. That when the children are separated from the parents who have been giving them all of the directions or the teacher who's been giving them all the directions or whoever the caretaker is at the time, those kids are a lot less likely to be able to push through for, you know, frustrating experiences, frustrating learning um, and finish the task. Whereas kids of autonomy, supportive parents, kids of parents who are there I want to make it really clear what I'm talking about is not walking away from your kids and letting them fend for themselves or being like, you know, absentee parents. I'm talking about parents that are present emotionally and supportive. If the kid gets really, really stuck and needs redirection, that's autonomy supportive. The kids of those parents push through are able to complete frustrating tasks. Here's why that's so important. And I want to make this super clear. Kids of directive parents are less likely to be able to finish frustrating tasks. Kids of autonomy supportive parents are more likely to be able to finish frustrating tasks. And when it comes to your child's learning, one of the most powerful tools we have is this thing called desirable 
difficulties, which is giving kids tasks that are just a hair over their ability level. It's sort of like those last couple math problems at the end of the assignment that take all of the things you've learned and apply them to some new area. A kid who's been highly directed is going to be a lot more likely to give up and freak out and just not finish that problem. Whereas a kid who's been given the opportunity um, to be frustrated which is so hard to watch our kids be frustrated, Mm -hmm. but to be frustrated and develop that emotional wherewithal where they feel like, okay, no, I I think I can handle it. Maybe I'll read the instructions again. Maybe I'll try number two and come back to number one. Um, Those kids are going to be a lot more likely to finish and therefore a lot more teachable, a lot more likely to learn because desirable difficulties is like this magic teaching tool that helps kids learn more durably helps them learn better because it moves stuff out of short-term memory and directly into long-term memory. Kids that can't deal with desirable difficulties, those overly directed kids are not going to learn as well or as more durably overall in general than kids who are able to be frustrated and able to be what we talk about as resilience or fortitude or perseverance and finish the task. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I say to parents over and over again, you know, I know it's hard to see kids get frustrated. It is so hard to see kids get frustrated, but let them get frustrated. As a teacher, it's hard for my to watch my students get frustrated. I know the answer. I'm dying to just tell them what the answer is so we can move on and get on to something else. But I can't because the more my students get frustrated, move past their frustration on their own, the better I'm going to be able to teach them, the more they will learn, the more learn teachable they will be and well, i can't stress that enough yes and of course you know this is we're talking about in the classroom and you know learning at home but hello but this yeah, is a life skill team. you know this is i mean there yeah. are there are going to be lots of not so desirable difficulties um well, and, you know in you know life. we read stuff like angela duckworth's grit and she gets asked constantly how do we develop grit and It turns out that's sort of a big open-ended question, but one of the ways that we develop kids who are able to be frustrated and push through, which is one attribute of grit, is to let them get used to being frustrated and and be able to rely on themselves to push through that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Absolutely. As you know, I am all about micro-improvements, and if you'd like to dedicate a little time each day to learn a language, I have a great solution for you. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that offers 10-minute language lessons designed to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Materials are rooted in real-life situations, so you can learn important basics such as ordering food and asking for directions. Babbel offers personalized learning content, real-time feedback, tracking, and visualizations, and their speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. No matter what level you are looking for, casual, intense, or something in between, you can enjoy app lessons, podcasts, and live classes from the comfort of your home on your schedule. Here's a special limited time deal for Edit Your Life listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for Edit Your Life listeners at babbel.com slash edit. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash edit. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash edit. Rules and restrictions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you struggle with boundaries and the general complexities of peopling? Relationships are necessary to our well-being and some relationships are just, well, complicated. A good chunk of the work I have done in therapy centers on relationships, how to own my part of the story, how to let go of relationships that are toxic, 
and how to navigate challenging relationships in a way that doesn't drain me. And all of this work helps me show up better for myself and also as a partner, mom, friend, family member, and business owner. If you're thinking of starting therapy, check out BetterHelp. This online therapy platform was designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com edit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash edit. Okay, so I want to talk um, a bit about failure, one of the things I love talking about. And, <laughs> you know, obviously you talk about in the book as um, failure as an asset. And, you know, for a lot of people, this is a tough perspective shift. I am sure it's you have so seen. Scary. Yeah, it's yeah. so scary. And it's so opposite to what we just have been hearing all this time. So in your experience, what have been the most effective ways to sort of get parents um, to really see and understand this mm-hmm. and, and flip that perspective switch? You know, it's funny. So there's this television show that I've gotten to work on called The Stinky and Dirty Show. And it's a, a show at Amazon Kids and it's for preschoolers. And the reason I love working on the show is the, the curriculum is based on gift of failure. And one of the reasons I love working on the show is that the characters in the show sort of are representative of preschoolers and they're given a challenge. They're given a problem that they have to solve, not just a problem that they have to solve because it would be nice, but a problem they have to solve because it will benefit them and the community, which is a really important part of, you know, feeling like the tasks we're doing are important. But the thing I absolutely love about these characters is that they think like preschoolers. So let's say they need to get something up a really steep hill and they can't do it themselves. And inevitably, one of their first solutions is going to be like, well, why don't we wait for the moon to come up and we'll throw a rope around the moon and the moon will help pull the thing up the hill. Well, that's ridiculous. Of course, that's not going to work. But over time, over the sort of various iterations of trying to get that thing up the hill and and failing multiple times, they learn what does work and what doesn't. And they won't repeat those failure, those mistakes, those failed attempts that were flawed in some way, again, either because the flaw is because gravity exists or because, you know, they're not using the right tools. They won't repeat those again. They don't have to struggle with that. They don't have to reinvent the wheel every time because now they have this learning about what will help them get that thing up the hill. And it's one of the problems with directive parenting is that if we never give kids the opportunity to really internalize the flawed or failed versions of what they've done, they don't carry that what does work forward, which is one reason I love, you know, when parents keep their hands off of science project stuff, because my husband is a scientist. um, And one of the things we know about science is that even flawed, even failed studies are information. Mm -hmm. Failed studies are really important information because now we know, okay, that drug doesn't work to reduce tumor size and X kind of cancer. That's incredibly important information. We recognize that in in medicine, and yet somehow we're so freaked out about our kids' trajectory through the race to college acceptance that we, we don't have time to abide by these mistakes that our kids make. And yet those mistakes are so valuable. Um, a kid recently revealed to me that he had done a project for art and the, thing, the instructions the teacher had given were um, incomplete, and he did the project the wrong way. But what he realized through that 
was that certain kinds of inks don't work for the project that the teacher had assigned. And the teacher didn't even know this. Mm-hmm. And the teacher was able to, the teacher said, and he stayed up all night to do it right because he was so freaked that he didn't have a successful end product. So he had an unsuccessful end product and a successful end product. And luckily, he had a teacher who said, you know what, this unsuccessful end product is so much more valuable to all of us than the successful end product. I'm glad you stayed up all night to do it. Please take a nap later on today because kids need sleep. Staying up all night to, you know, do something is maybe not the best idea. But in the end, um, you know, there are lots of teachers who would say, forget it. If you don't have a successful end product, you failed this this project. More and more teachers are realizing that this is exactly the wrong way to handle education because education is about trial and error. It's about increasingly project-based learning, increasingly, you know, self-directed learning where in order to, and design thinking, in order to come up with a, a, a successful end product, there must be failed iterations. And ignoring that, pretending that that's not part of the process is lying to children, number one. They're going to have a huge awakening when they get to medical school. Um, and also it's underestimating the value of those failed iterations. And mm-hmm. You know, I really I'm very optimistic as you know, around education right now. I really do think that as more and more evidence comes out about the benefit of, you know, problem based learning and design thinking and that kind of stuff, um, we're moving in the right direction. I really am optimistic about that. Um, But it's the teachers who say, no, 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 only the perfect end product is what matters. Those teachers Man, I just I want to get him in a room and just talk to him a little bit. Yeah, actually, my my 13 year old Laurel, she has a has a teacher right now who it it's not it doesn't even always make sense, but you know she'll she'll dock you on marks if you've written in the wrong color mm-hmm. pen. I mean, just stuff that does not even make any sense. So I well, and also you know it's really important to remember that, for example, homework tends to be one place where parents really overdo their over overdo their involvement with the kids. And what's really important to remember is that homework is information. Homework, incomplete homework, homework with a note on it from the kid as to why they couldn't understand number seven and number eight is incredibly important information for the kid. If the parent steps in and explains it in a way that, you know, is really about the parent doing the problem for the kid, that is like teacher's pet peeve. Teachers tell me all the time, oh, my gosh, I get these kids in algebra class who have used trigonometry on their homework and we haven't even learned trigonometry yet. And the kid can't explain how they got the answer. That was a wasted night of homework for that kid and wasted time for the teacher. Yep. All right. Well, so we have been talking a lot about, you know, the parent side of things. But one thing I did want to acknowledge and touch on is, you know, there there is. So I'll just say I I consider myself a recovering perfectionist. And now I'm Mm -hmm. all about, you know, we actually, Asha and I have an episode, a really old one, number 27, called Modeling Imperfection. So we are very Mm -hmm. much into like, hey, embrace failure. It's all an experiment. It's all good. But, you know, my older one is a perfectionist. She really is. Mm -hmm. So um, and I think you have a an older New York Times article on this, maybe. But I was wondering if you have any advice for parents who for how they can help perfectionist kids or kids who fret mm-hmm. a lot and are very anxious about about failure, how how can parents help those kids embrace it and sort of look at it as a positive thing? You're absolutely right. There's an older New York Times article that was in Motherload before Motherload became well blog uh, called became well family called How to Help Perfectionist Kids Worry Less and Do More. 
And in that article, I recommend two books. They happen to be by the same author. One is sort of the more academic version, and one is the sort of more uh, popular version. There's a book called um, When A Isn't Good Enough, and I love that book. So there are all these resources. I also just did a video. I have a, a sort of a gift of failure frequently asked questions video series at YouTube on my YouTube channel. And this was, I think, question one or question two, because this is one of the most frequently asked questions I get, which is, look, it's not me. I'm all about the learning. But my kid is such a perfectionist. Um, I have two answers to that. Number one, are you really all about the learning? I mean, I think you need to sort of look at the way you react to high grades as opposed to to low grades, the way you react to high grades as opposed to learning opportunities, and really look at not just what you're saying to kids, but also the behavior you're modeling to them about what you do really care about. Do you care about the learning or do you really just care about the grades? So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to kids who are perfectionist and when it comes to kids who are really anxious, and that's an increasing slice of my mm -hmm. classroom, um, even in, uh, from the hoity-toity private schools all the way down, you know, I teach, I teach drug and alcohol addicted kids in an inpatient rehab setting now, and I'm still seeing this with them. The best thing you can do for these kids over and over and over again is to focus on the process, not the product. And what that means is that, of course, you can have an emotional reaction to a low grade as opposed to a high grade. That's just reality. But if you're constantly coming back to, well, what did you do to get that grade? What did you, you know, did you use flashcards or did you just highlight everything and shove it into your short term memory and hope it wouldn't fall out before the test? Did you, oh, you say your friend got an A on that and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? What are, what are you going to take with you next time? That what about next time is the most important question we can ask. Mm -hmm. Because what we're ending up is, with is a, is a situation with, and this happens in my classroom all the time, if I don't do this perfectly right here, I am a failure. And by the way, there is evidence to show that girls with this differently. Um, girls tend to internalize the failure and see themselves as failures, whereas boys tend to sort of, they can put it over there and they can say, oh, that was a failure. And that is coming straight from Rachel Simmons and her work on um, girls. She has a new book coming out called When um, Good Enough As She Is that I cannot highly, I can't recommend highly enough. It won't be out for a while, but it's fantastic about girls and, and how they react to this stuff. Focus on process over product and focus on long-term over short-term. And those perfectionist kids are going to keep coming back to the points. They're going to keep coming back to the grade. Yeah, but, yeah, but, I got a 97 and not a 100. Yeah, but, you need to over and over and over again say, look, I don't care about that number. What I care about is what are you going to do next time to learn better? If this grade is actually tied to learning, which, P.S., a lot of the time it's not, because the way we, we assess kids is really flawed, Grades are not always a really good indicator of learning. They're a very good indicator of game playing, though. Um, how are you going to do it differently next time? What's your plan for next time? And think long term. The more you can do that, the more you can kind of diffuse that anxiety about this here and now and this emergency right in front of me. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that is so great. And, um, you know, very, very gratifying to hear. You know, I think, um, you know, personally, my I think. Laurel really is she just she just really values I mean she she wants the grades and she values you mm -hmm. know doing a good job and all that and 
you know, she recently had this very complicated project actually for math where they actually had to like use hammer and nails and do all these, these angles things. And of course I get like very up in arms about projects like that just because I'm like, not everybody has parents who can go to Home Depot and buy nails and wood. And this makes me like really upset, but, um, you know, she, yeah, projects that definitely projects that clearly require the parents' involvement, drive me nuts. They drive me nuts. K.J. Delantonio, my former editor at the New York Times, I think she's even written about this, that look, we need to, and I wrote about this in an article about science fairs. I said, look, if this is really about the kids learning, can we really expect that these projects will be children's projects and not like, you know, a um, hologram of the universe to scale, you know, that clearly the child had no hand in. That drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, my my point in bringing this up is that, um, you know, she did it. She ended up doing we had to talk. I was I was like, you got to dial this back, girl. Like she had these very complex ideas. And so she ended up doing something really cool. It was a unicorn, of course. And, um, you know, spent a lot of time on it, hammered all of her own nails. And she was really proud of it teacher ended up docking her a bunch of points on various things. And it actually sparked a really great conversation after because I said, you know, I mean, it really doesn't matter. Like you did this mm-hmm. yourself. This is something to be really proud of. But next time, like maybe, you know, ask her about clarifying the rubric a little bit more because clearly there Absolutely. were instructions in there that didn't, you know, just didn't come through. And I think she actually got it. And I, I don't know, this is totally anecdotal, but I don't know. I wonder also if it was it was such a tangible thing as as grumpy as I was about the hammers and nails and boards and everything. She really had to, like, put her hands into this project. And Mm -hmm. I think that helped, you know, helped her a little bit to see that, Okay, you know, I I still got something out of that. So I was I was glad you did. You awesome mom did something incredible at the end. What you did was encourage her to speak up for herself. You encouraged her to become her own best self-advocate. And that is something that unfortunately has been taken away from kids. Um, kids who can be their own best self-advocate, um, especially kids who have special needs, kids who are going to need things from adults that maybe other kids don't, kids who need things repeated, kids who need to understand the guidelines more clearly. Um, those kids, I've, I say this over and over and over again, when the question inevitably comes up at the end of my talk, which is, yeah, 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 but what about college? I say this over and over and over again. Kids who can self-advocate are going to get a better education anywhere they go than kids who can't stand up for themselves, open their mouths, and tell people what they need, even if they're at the best Ivy League university. I think that self-advocacy is, and that was what you were teaching there, is next time ask your teacher for a clearer um, description of what exactly needs to be done and that she is going to go like that lesson you taught her there may even be more important than whatever lessons she learned through, you know, applying geometry to the angle of a unicorn horn. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a shirt. All right. Listen, so I have, I just have two more quick questions. Like, I feel sure. like I would just love to talk to you all day, but um, one is, this is sort of, this next one is related to everything we've been talking about, but for parents who have been helping their kids do all of the things and and really do want to stop doing all the things mm-hmm. but are having a hard time with it, you know, what do you what would you recommend as, you know, a top way to kind of untangle that cycle mm-hmm. that they've been in to help kids find their own way and figure out how to do things on their own? Well, there are a couple of things. Number one, um, be on the same page with your partner. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my this gosh. Yes. Big, 
this is, um, you know, and that can be incredibly hard, especially if you're not living in the same place and uh, co-parenting. It's, it's really challenging. And I will admit right off the bat that this is a much easier row to hoe when you are on the same page as your partner. Um, these are also the biggest tears I see from kids, which is I really, really need my parents to back off, but only one will do it. And they don't talk to each other because they hate each other, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so be on the same page or at least have this conversation with your with your partner. Number two. Start trying to wrap your brain around that mindset of um, that we don't live emergency to emergency. We need to learn to live more long term, more big picture, more where do I want my kids to be, you know, five years down the road. Think long term, not short term. Think process over product. So that's number two. Number three, go and make the plan to change things clear, not only with your children, have a conversation with your children, little kids, obviously age appropriate, older kids can handle a more clear discussion like, you know what, I've been doing too much for you. I've screwed this up and I've been using the best available evidence I had. I've been using the best available information I had, but I've learned some stuff and I'm going to try to do better. Oh my gosh, suddenly you're modeling for your child an adaptive response to mistakes. That's fantastic. You can also go to your kid's teacher, especially if you've been one of those parents that's on the portal 10 times a day and you email that teacher 10 times a day to say, oh, I'm on top of it. I'm going to fix it. Go to the teacher and say, look, I think I've been doing too much for my kid and it's really time for me to step back, which means for a little while in the near future, things could get dicey. I'm not going to be checking the portal. I'm going to be helping my kid come up with strategies for how to remember to take their homework to school and put it in the backpack and take it out of the backpack and get it in your hands. So I need for you to be my partner in this. And I trust you saying I trust you to a teacher. I trust you to do your job and 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 be concerned with my kid's education is like, oh, my gosh, they're just going to so many teachers will kiss you on the cheek for that. Um, so explaining that, yeah, things could get dicey, but I need you to hold my kid to consequences. With the understanding that, you know, the next two weeks could be rough, um, but together we can help my kid understand that she's more competent than we than I have led her to believe. Because when we do everything for our kids, essentially what we're telling them is, I don't think you can handle this yourself. And that fosters this thing called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness doesn't undo itself. The way to um, rewire learned helplessness and there's really good research on this, is by handing back control. Mm -hmm. So giving control back to our kids undoes in the longer term some of that learned helplessness. They, I can't do it on my own. That kind of stuff gets better the more you give your kid the power to figure it out on their own. So backing up process over product, long term over short term, Make your expectations and your consequences really clear for your kid. Don't try to do it all at once. You know how Marie Kondo says, don't try to clean your whole house at once. Start with one thing. <laughs> Start maybe with homework um, and say, you know, I think I've been doing too much for you. Homework is now your thing. Um, we will not be butting into that. Um, but the reality is if it doesn't get done here, the consequences and the consequences should flow from sort of natural consequences from not doing your homework like you're going to have to run that parent-teacher conference where we all talk together about strategies for getting it done, make expectations really clear, consequences really clear, and make it clear to the child's teacher that um, you are doing this thing. Don't just rip the rug out from underneath everybody and make a whole change to the way you parent. That's going to upset everybody. Um, but it's And it's also never too late because even older kids appreciate the fact that, wow, in a year, I'm going to have to start, you know, like filling out tax forms and mm -hmm. 
insurance forms. And mom, why haven't you been letting me fill out my school forms this whole time? Because P.S. I don't fill out any school forms. My children have been doing that for years. So, you know, start start where it's best for you and your family make expectations really clear and just start thinking more long-term and less short-term. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the reality that it's never too late is a really good note to close on with this conversation because I think that's what, you know, people get freaked out about and in in so many things, it really is not too late um, to start helping people become more independent human beings. So I think that inevitably, inevitably those are the parents that come to me at the end of the talk and, you know, they don't want to talk in front of everybody else. So they wait for the whole room to clear out and then they start to cry. And then they say, my child is 17 and he doesn't even know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, you know, <laughs> and I have to reassure them and say, you know what, actually he does know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I think you'll find out pretty quickly that your kid is competent and, and capable of doing a lot of things that you had no idea. Yeah. A kid is capable of doing. Yes. All right. Well, so at the close of each of our shows, we like to do something called your next edit, where we share mm-hmm. an actionable tip that listeners mm-hmm. can take away like right after the show. And mm-hmm. I would love to hear what your next edit would be relating to our conversation today. So I've been actually thinking about this a lot lately because my I tend to just open my mouth and let things fall out. And I do that with my children, too. And I've been trying really, really hard to stop and let there be a pause and take a breath and think about why I'm answering, you know, instead of just saying no, like, cause I don't want the kid to make a mess or my knee jerk response is to say no, to really question why I'm, you know, what my motivation is in giving that answer. And often what I'll find is that um, my knee jerk reaction to let me just do that for you or no, that's going to make too much of a mess or whatever, isn't always my best answer. And Kids evolve over time and therefore our thinking about how we react to their requests and their needs should change over time, too. So I guess my answer is take a breath. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for your time and your wisdom. This was just so wonderful to talk with you. And I love that this is going to help so many parents. So thank you. I'm so happy to finally be on the show. I'm such a fan of the show. I, I'm a fan of all the things that you do. And I didn't even mention your podcast, Am Writing, hashtag Am Writing with KJ. We will link up that and all of the things that we discussed in our show notes. Friends, wasn't that lovely? Jess is truly magical and so full of wisdom and compassion and understanding. I just loved talking to her and I love hearing it on repeat. You'll find the show notes for this episode, including links to resources and related episodes at edityourlifeshow.com. As ever, I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. Come say hello on Instagram or Facebook at edityourlifeshow or send an email to edityourlifeshow at gmail.com. I would also be grateful if you would drop Edit Your Life a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a pod-loving friend about the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? 
And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.